Okay, guys, what's what we're going to do? We're going to look to the last section of 1 Timothy today. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and then we'll move into chapter 6 very quickly. And as you're doing that, uh, let me get... We have a, a short PowerPoint here to help us out today. Okay, there we go. 1 Timothy, okay, so the, this is pop quiz time. What have you learned about 1 Timothy? As we come to the conclusion, the, the teacher wants to know if his class has learned anything this last semester. So don't let me down. No pressure. Actually, there's a lot of pressure. Um, so first, Timothy, what, what are some of your takeaways as we uh, conclude here? Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Love and sound doctrine, leaders that teach. Um, why is sound doctrine so important? What, what have you learned about that? Why is sound doctrine so important? Yeah, because we live according to our doctrine. Yeah. So if if you want to have godly living, you have to input sound doctrine. And when our thinking and our our theology gets mixed up a little bit, that results in uh, mechanical issues in your Christian life. Let's say it like that. Um, so very important that, that we do that. And sound doctrine is not just an end in itself. Sound doctrine is the prerequisite to righteous living. And that's why it's so important that we get our doctrine right. And and don't think when you hear doctrine, don't think you know that systematic theology book on my shelf or all those books that Pastor Terry has in his office. I mean, those are doctrine. But remember, doctrine is just what you believe at every moment of your life about hundreds of different things. Uh, it's it's what you embrace is true. It's it's the the things you use to make decisions. It's the it's the objects that capture your affection. It's the motivations of your heart. It's the desires of your heart. Um, you know, follow your emotions, and you'll find out what your real theology is. And uh, if we want to get our life, our Christian life, right, if we want to grow to be like Christ, we have to uh, be be following sound doctrine. So, something else. What, what have you learned in First Timothy? If you're visiting with us, you get a pass. Just just hang out. So, yeah. Yeah, watch out for false teachers. Why do you think that's so important? Yeah. 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 Okay, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever made a bad decision? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you ever made a bad decision because you listened to somebody? Okay. See, that's what that's exactly what happens is, is we think, you know, we, we listen to these sources of information. You know, you're, you get on Facebook and you're like, oh, wow, look at this blog article that has, you know, 3,928 likes and all my friends like it. And and you get on it and, and you start reading this stuff and it's talking about your marriage and relationships. And you're like, yeah, I need to do that. And all of a sudden you realize that, well, it, it sounded good. It sounded biblical, but there was some there was some stuff in there that wasn't right. And now that's that's messing up your relationships. That's affecting your parenting. It's affecting your marriage. It's affecting how you relate to other people. And and that see, that's how it works. You know, it's not like you know Satan pulls a an ad on the you know the Facebook you know sidebar. You know, here well, let's get some th- false theology today. Click here for more information. You know, that's not how it works. It works when it's ninety seven percent truth and three percent error, and it captures your affections and begins to change how you do life. Uh, it doesn't take much poison uh, to poison the whole 
the whole thing, right? So false teachers, that's right. Uh, you're, you're right on with that. Okay, maybe one other thing. What, what have you learned in First Timothy? Okay, how to treat others. We've, we've learned a few things about that. Anything, Gary, particular stick out uh, to you in that? Yeah. Caring for people well is what the church is called to do. And again, that's part of our theme for this next year is to excel in that, to excel in caring for people. And that means we're going to look out for people that we might otherwise overlook, like widows, like singles. Um, like people that are hurting, uh, maybe unspoken, but as we get to know them, we ask questions, we pray for them. Um, but caring for people, right? The, the goal of our instruction, I, I hope you get this, right? Right out of the gate, Paul says in chapter 1, the goal of our instruction is love. So if what we're doing doesn't terminate on loving God and loving others, well, we need to back up and figure out where we went wrong. Okay, very good. Well, I'm glad some of you learned something. That makes me feel better. So, Okay, so back to the text here. Let's uh, pick it up where we left off last time. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Actually, we're really in chapter 6 now. Uh, so let's let's look at the section that we're going to uh, park in and hopefully finish. For, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, and we, we started this a couple of weeks ago, and so some of this will sound a little bit familiar, but I want to back up just a couple of steps to get a running start so that we can remember some of the context. What, what's going on here is he's talking about misguided reasons for getting involved in leadership in the local church or getting involved in formal ministry. And he talks about how one of those one of those motivations, one of those wrong motivations is a motivation to earn money. And, of course, I grew up in the 80s. I grew up with, you know, Trinity Broadcasting Network and, uh, you know, the headquarters was not too far from where I grew up in Southern California. And you had all these televangelists and TV preachers and whatnot spouting health and wealth. And, you know, uh, I, got an, I got a note from God last night and he said that you need to send me in a donation and, you know, that sort of preaching. And, and so that was the generation I grew up in. And, and today, the misguided reasons for going, going into ministry for financial gain, sadly, are still alive and well. So let's learn what we can from here. And that, that may not be directly relevant to, to you and me, but what he's going to do is as he talks about the the the... Basically, the love for money becoming too important in your life, he's going to back into that and just talk about how we need to be careful about our finances in general. So let's let's look together at that. Uh, chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose, here it is, that godliness is a means of gain, meaning, meaning I'm gonna, I'm gonna pursue formal ministry because it's gonna bring some sort of financial benefit. And then he pushes back in verse 6 and says this, but godliness actually is a means of great gain, when it's accompanied by contentment, meaning we're not pursuing Christ and, and uh, a role in the local church 
out of our desire to get rich, but we're doing it uh, with contentment and a desire to grow in godliness. Verse 7, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires plunge men into ruin and destruction. Here's, here's that verse. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And then down in verse 17, he continues the discussion. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Okay, it's lots of good stuff there, so let's let's jump back into our outline. If you, you've got that outline there, you can follow along. So this last point here really is avoid doctrine which does not agree with Christ or does not conform to godliness. And uh, this is review from last time. Here's your two tests for false doctrine. Ready? Christ did not teach it, and it does not produce godliness in people. So if we, we, we don't have, uh, you know, we have something that we're embracing, some new... Uh, you know, uh, key to a happy marriage, uh, some, you know, successful formula for parenting, uh, some latest, greatest uh, get over your addiction deal. If you don't find biblical truth undergirding whatever that is, it fails the test of sound doctrine, uh, even if it's popular, even if it's uh, highly liked in social media. So I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, well, how am I going to know if that blog I read on Facebook is biblical? How am I going to know that? Answer, I've got to know my Bible. Well, how are you going to do that? Hopefully you're reading it. Hopefully you're doing more than reading it. You're studying it. You're thinking about it. You're reading solid books that help you to interpret it rightly. You're listening to Pastor Terry when he preaches and taking notes. All those sorts of things. Uh, this, this, is, this is that old, old practice of reading and studying and meditating and memorizing the Word of God. And, and uh, we, we've said it multiple times in First Timothy. When, when you're not a... Biblically-minded Christian, you are an easy target for deception. And when you're an easy target for deception, that means that you are more prone to making really bad decisions in your life. And so we need to be careful to study the Bible. Did Christ teach it? And uh, and do that. The, The second test is it does not produce godliness in people. Uh, this, is a, this is a really, really uh, humbling, actually, if you think about it. Am I more like Christ because of that blog I read or that book I read or that sermon series I listened to online? Uh, am I more like Christ when I finished that Sunday school class or, or um, you know, concluded listening to Pastor Terry's series on Romans or something like that? And if the answer is... No, or I don't know, then something has gone wrong. 
Godliness is a product of truth applied to life in faith in Christ. And so just getting the truth of the Bible is not sufficient. It has to be humbly applied. And um, so if it's not producing godliness, we ought to pull the car over and say, what went wrong? It's possible that the doctrine is wrong. It's possible the application is wrong or missing. But we need to be careful about that. What's one of the roots of false doctrine? It's pride. Chapter 6, verse 4. We read that a moment ago. He's conceited and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. This is a good thing. And I, I have to do this too. Because like you, I have writers online that I like to read. I have blogs I like to read, whether it's from the Gospel Coalition or Desiring God or you know your favorite ministry. And, and would you guys agree with me that sometimes there's a tone in social media of conceit and arrogance and pride, even talking about Christian things? Isn't that like the worst oxymoron that a Christian can come up with? The absolute most atrocious witness, an arrogant Christian. And yet it's all over the place, isn't it? And here's the problem. When I read that blog, even if their doctrine is right, if their tone is conceit and arrogance and pride, that affects me too, doesn't it? Then I start having a bit of a judgmental spirit. I start looking down my nose at other people that don't believe the same thing. I start to adopt a a sort of snooty arrogance in my dialogue with other people that might disagree. So it's not just the message, but how the message is delivered that's just as important. And guys, you know this, we we can undermine the effect of the Word of God simply by bringing the wrong attitude in how we're sharing it with other people. So we want to make sure that our our words are Christ-like, but we want to make sure our attitude is Christ-like as well. We want to get our doctrine right, but we want, we want the delivery to be humble and Christ-like. And, and how many good doctrines are poisoned simply by the presence of spiritual pride? So let's be careful about that. Um, We major on right doctrine in our church, and that's good. We ought to do that. The Bible says we ought to do that. But that sometimes creates an occasion for spiritual pride and conceit, which we want to just be aware of and repent of quickly when we see it in our hearts. Okay, so let's come down to, this is kind of where we left off last time. A desire to get rich is another root of false doctrine. We've talked about that. Chapter 6, verse 5, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, meaning financial gain. So this is the stereotypical TV preacher. Some of you are young enough, you've never seen a TV preacher, but you know what a YouTube preacher is. It's, It's like the same thing, it's just... Back, it was only on the TV, you know, back before the internet was invented. So, but it's this idea that, um, and this, this is, as a pastor, this, this is really grievous to me because there are many people that are writing books and preaching sermons and writing blogs and, 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 and a lot of times saying a lot of the right things, but they're doing it for the wrong motivation. 
And uh, so we have to watch out for that, especially as we uh, we create followings in the people in the larger Christian world that we want to follow. But let's personalize that. Let's not talk about just a desire to get rich as another root of false doctrine, although that's true. Let's talk about it simply as um, a, a real root of temptation we need to be careful about. Regarding doctrine, godliness should be accompanied by contentment. Uh, verse chapter uh, 6 verses 6 to 8 there he says but godliness is actually means of great gain when accompanied by contentment we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either so what he's saying is pursue Christ pursue ministry do what you do for the gospel but do it contented with whatever your financial situation happens to be uh, in, in fact, one of the things that Paul's going to say in another letter is that the reason God blesses financially is so that we can use that to further the gospel message. Uh, let's, let's create heavenly treasure rather than increase our worldly comforts with that blessing if God provides that for us. And then he gets into this final little section here. Look at verse 9. He says, those who want to get rich... Now, this is everybody now. This isn't just false teachers and wannabe pastors. This is everybody. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. How many of you have seen that before? Have you ever seen the love of money plunging somebody into all sorts of evil and destruction? You ever seen that? I've seen that. I've had some good friends what are what are some of the traps if 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 i start loving wealth and the desire for wealth too much what are some of the things that am I, that, that i'm going to be tempted to do or maybe even even other sin issues that i'm going to get involved in because that love of money becomes too much yeah ruth okay yeah, have you seen that? And this isn't just with money. Have you seen how the, the wrong desire rearranges our priorities, doesn't it? And yeah, if it's money, it's now I'm rearranging. I'm, I'm maybe not worshiping as much. Maybe I'm not spending time with people as much. Right? So, so it, it can really mess up some of our priorities so that they're out of alignment with things that really matter. What, what's another way that a love of money creates destruction and, what does he say here, plunge men into ruin and destruction? All sorts of evil. Um, other thoughts? Yeah, Ian? Okay, taking more risks than you normally would. Okay. What else? Unethical routes. Unethical routes. Yeah, you, now, now you're making decisions that are unethical, immoral, sinful even. Rob? That's what I was going to say. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, doesn't a love of money tempt you to compromise your integrity? Or maybe to lie? Yeah, someone else? Yeah, Gary? Yeah. Yeah, you tend to trust in it versus God. And, and, and that's, uh, that really gets to the bottom line, doesn't it? You know, when we're clinging, and maybe it's money, maybe it's something, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's, you know, good health, or, you know, when, when we begin to cling to something else instead of Christ, that's really dangerous. Because trusting Christ is, is the baseline of our spiritual health, isn't it? 
And when that starts to erode, everything else starts to go with it. Listen to this, and and we've read this so many times, but just, just really hear the impact of this verse. It's the very end of the paragraph, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Listen to this. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. That's dangerous, isn't it? If, if, I, if I said to you, see that over there? That can steal your children away from you if you're not careful. Would you pay attention? See that over there? See that? That can rob you of your grandchildren. Would you pay attention to that? See, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you see this thing right here? It can rob you not of precious people like children and grandchildren or a spouse, that can rob you of your relationship with God Himself. And that's what it does. Do you remember the the sower and the soils, right? The sower goes out to soil, he's throwing the, the seed all over the place. Jesus uses that as an analogy of how different people respond to the gospel. One of them, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word and it dies. That's what it can do. So you say, I I know, Pastor Keith, that's great. So I'm going to pray for all those rich people in my life that they don't do that. That's what I'll do. Um, Let's remind ourselves that when Paul is talking to the rich, he's talking to us. He's talking to us. How many of you have been to a third world country? How many of you support missionaries in third world countries? Um, We are rich beyond measure. This is talking about us, isn't it? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, pray, praying for contentment now because that's true. You know, we every every generation of uh, Christians has some measure of persecution. We have enjoyed in our country. We have enjoyed one of the longest standing seasons of prosperity than two thousand years of church history, or in two thousand years of church history. And uh, are we thankful for that? Sure we are. That's, that's great. Uh, praise the Lord for that. Life is, life is comfortable. But it's dangerous in the sense that we can get spiritually relaxed and lean on that comfort too much. And it's also dangerous because when those comforts begin to be taken away, what are we going to cling to? Are we going to make the goal in life the retention of those comforts? The clinging to those freedoms? Or are we going to be clinging to the Lord Jesus and the furtherance of His gospel? I'm I'm afraid if, if this season plays out that Christians spend more time advocating for their rights than sharing the gospel with their neighbor. And that's that's a real danger. 
Not, not that there isn't a time to, you know, say we want those freedoms and we don't want to lose those. There's, there's, a, there's a good battle there. But that can't be the main battle. The main battle is as our freedoms are being eroded and, and taken away and life is changing quickly and there's all sorts of people freaking out about it, are we evangelizing? Are we showing people the true foundation and support in the midst of those things? Or are we spending all of our time advocating for the getting those rights back? So th- those are temptations. And, and, and a wealthy, prosperous nation like ours is very, very prone to temptations and spiritual disasters of all kinds because of this. So we need to be careful. I I think you're right. I I think now is the time we we ready our hearts to be content with very little. uh, But to know that if we have Christ, we have everything. So so just let let that, that's that's a good meditation verse, guys, for this week. Just to meditate on that, that plunge men into ruin and harmful destruction. The love of money is a root of all. This is is not the right message the day after Christmas, is it? You know? Take back all those things I got yesterday. No. Um, but, but seriously, this, this is it. We, we need to guard our hearts from the love of stuff and from the love of money so that we can get stuff or the love of money which gives a semblance of security and stand on the one who alone um, allows us to do all things because he strengthens us. All right. Look at this last little section. It's, it's down at the very end of the letter, 17 and 19. Instruct those who are rich not to trust in their riches, but to be sharing and generous, more focused on storing up heavenly treasure. So here's the thing. You notice how, how the Bible always gives you a contrast. Anytime the Bible says, don't do this, it's going to tell you do this instead. Right? So the front end of the book, it says the goal of our instruction is love for God and for neighbor. So it gets to the end of the book, he's going to say, so don't love your stuff and your money too much, right? So love God, love neighbor, don't love your money and your stuff too much. So there's the contrast. So, so watch now how he says, take that misplaced desire for love and redirect it towards something righteous. Okay, well, watch how he does this. Look at verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now I want you to do this. If you write in your Bible, I want you to do this. Like I seriously want you to do this right now. Okay? Instruct those who are rich in this present world, just write in the margin, me. You got that? Me. Okay? Instruct those who are rich in this present world, that's me, not to be conceited. There's that, there's that warning of pride again. Or, and one of you mentioned this, to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Unhitch your wagon of security from your bank account and hitch it back up to the certainty and reliability of a faithful Savior that will never leave you or forsake you. Don't be conceited. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who, I love this, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Doesn't He do that? Let's love the giver more than the gift. Let's stand as a foundation, as a, having a humble confidence in the security of the giver of every good thing and not His stuff. 
And we know that because when, when he, when he takes one of those gifts away and we freak out, that tells us, oh, I was relying more on his, on the, on the gift than the giver, right? He, he says it earlier, right? We, we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing away. This is, you can't take it with you. This is Job chapter two, right? Or Job chapter one. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I didn't deserve it in the first place. So don't be conceited. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but fix it on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Okay, so so focus on the security of the giver, not the gift. Now, now watch this. Look at verse 18. Instruct them instead to do good and to be rich. See, we ought to be rich. We ought, there, there is a rich that a type of rich that we should be pursuing, but it's a richness in good works and generosity. Why does okay? Here's, here's another quiz question. Why does God bless us with so much? So we can bless others. Isn't that simple? Uh, we, we talk in our family. We talk fairly regularly of how wonderfully rich God has made our lives, wonderfully comfortable. And He doesn't make our lives rich and comfortable so that we can hoard comfort, but so that we can share it with people that aren't as comfortable. Instruct those to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future. That, that's right. That's I'm, I'm maxing out my 401k, right? Is that what he's talking about? Uh, no. So that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So here's the question. What can you store up in life that is life indeed? And will endure into eternity. Being Christ-like, right? Because we're going to be Christ-like forever, aren't we? Relationship with other people. The only thing you can take to heaven with you is other people. So when God makes us comfortable, when God gives us money, when God gives us stuff, when God gives us so many things, let's pour that out into people and into righteousness because those things will last eternally. And here, here's, his, here's his retirement. You're going to hear the spiritual retirement plan. Did you hear it here? Here's the spiritual retirement plan. Store up for yourselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future. That's not a number in your 401k. What is it? Paul says you want to have a good foundation for the future? Pour your life out in ministry to others today. And in our last moments of life on this earth, what will bring the satisfaction of that moment is not the balance left in our checking account that's going to be passed on to our heritage, but the people that we spent investing our lives in for spiritual transformation. That's what a secure future looks like.
can, you, can we think of any way? I mean, do you think about ending well? <laughs> How do you want to end? Do you want to end with specific faces, specific names in mind of people that by God's grace, he gave you the privilege of getting to minister to in some way? Right? And that's, it's not how, that's how I want it. It's how you want to end too. I know it is. And that's what we need. We need to settle that now because that's going to change our priorities, isn't it? That's going to change what we spend our money on. It's going to change how we look at our comforts. It's going to change when we hear that, you know, bing, Fox News comes up and we go, oh no, here's, here's the 3,000th reason why the, the country is going down the toilet again. And how you respond to that. Based on how you want to finish. And based on what really matters. And then, Paul says this. Just be faithful till Jesus comes. We need to be faithful until Jesus comes. How are we going to do that? What does faithfulness look like until Jesus... You could take... If, if, this, if this book is about a road map... For a healthy church. This is helps to become strong, spiritually healthy churches. How do we do that? Seven words that just make that really clear. And this is Paul like he's sending off his first kid to college, right? Some of you have done this. You know, the, your kid's driving down the... Weldon, this happened to you uh, recently. I know that, right? So you're, you're driving down, you're pulling out of the driveway, and your mom and dad are going, and one more thing, and, and don't forget this, and one more thing, right? And so watch Paul go into this shotgun sort of approach of just do this, do this, do this, do this, the roadmap for faithfulness until Jesus comes. Here's the first word, flee. Look at verse 11. Flee from these things, you man of God. Flee from the love of money. Flee from all sorts of evil. Flee from pride. Flee from conceit. Flee from a life of misplaced priorities and false doctrine and contention with people and, and flee from those things. This is the Joseph method of dealing with temptation in your life. Run Away. And we will not finish well if we are tolerating the things that trip us up instead of running away from them. So take a minute. Do you know the things that you need to flee from? You know what those things are? Not like, you know, here's general sin, I'm going to flee from general sin, but like, no, your sin. Your specific temptation, the, the thing that trip you up over and over and over again. Paul says, you want a roadmap for a healthy church? You want to finish well? You need to flee from those things. It needs to be a daily intentional running away from those things. Identify them and run away. Number two, pursue a life of righteousness and godliness. Verse 11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Remember, okay, so you got to put off and put on, right? Flee from the things that tempt you. Instead, run toward righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Let's talk about those words real quick. Righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not complicated. It's what you and I know to be right. 
He says, run to that, pursue that in your relationships, in your private life, in your corporate life, in your school, in your parenting. Pursue what you know is right. Godliness, right? Being like Christ. It's, 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 again, it's not complicated. I get up in the morning and I run from the things that are going to trip me up and I run toward Christ and what He's like. Growing in Christ-likeness. Growing in godliness. Grow, He says, pursue in faith. What, what's faith? It's just trust in Christ. I get up in the morning and I say, I'm going to walk with Christ today. Lord, help me to trust you. In every moment, and, and when I hear all these other things, help me to not be deceived. There it is, there it is again. Grow, pursue in love, because the goal of our instruction is love. Perseverance. Continue in these things. When things get hard, don't abandon it. Don't, don't, uh, slide. Don't regress. But when things get hard, press in to your faith. Press into the Lord Jesus. And oh, by the way, gentleness. What is that doing there? Gentleness? Why gentleness? Because we can pursue our faith in in reckless ways, especially with other people, can't we? So yes, pursue faith, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue love, pursue, pursue perseverance, but do it in gentleness knowing that our our zeal for God has to be tempered and channeled by wisdom so that we're not wrecking balls for Jesus. We're instruments in the Redeemer's hands. So gentleness is so important there, isn't it? So flee the wrong things. Pursue the right things. Number three, fight the good fight of faith. This is where he started. This should sound familiar because he's repeating a lot of the things he said in chapter 1, isn't he? The goal of our instruction is love. Fight the good fight of faith. Now he comes back and he says, fight that good fight of faith. Um, That reminds us that the Christian life is not a cruise to the Caribbean. It's not a walk in the park. It's not a sunny day at the beach. It's not sitting around... The campfire. It's not sitting in your favorite chair with the fireplace and your favorite beverage. Christian, the Christian life is a war zone. And we fight it. We, we fight with spiritually derived tools energized by the Holy Spirit to fight the good fight of it. You know what that means today? I'm going to just apply this in one, it could be many applications, one way. I think fighting the good fight of faith today for us and our generation simply means we maintain a focus on the furtherance of the gospel and not be distracted by all the political things that get us riled up. Because if we get distracted, we're taking our energy and focus away from something that matters eternally and we're putting it on something that's temporary. We don't want to do that. We want to get to the end of life and say, oh, I fought for that. Okay, and then we die and it goes away. We want to get to the end of life and say, I poured out my life and by God's grace, that person is coming to heaven with me. So fight the good fight of faith. Fight the fight of faith of the gospel. Number four, take hold of eternal life with which you were called and you made the confession in the presence of many ways. What do you think that means? Because I know you're thinking, Pastor Keith, our eternity is secure, right? We believe in the security of the believer. Eternal security, no condemnation. That's in the Bible somewhere. Yes, that's true. 
So what does he mean when he says, take hold of eternal life, if we already have it? Okay, so maybe it's just, you know, think about it, consider it to be true so that it helps us to endure. I like that. Other thoughts? Keep eternity in mind. I like that. Yeah, very good. Okay. What's that? Okay, how so? Yeah. Do you think that the decisions we make today demonstrate to people around us if we're living for this world or the next world? Makes a difference, doesn't it? I think you're right. So take hold of eternal life. We already have it. Live like it's yours. Live like that's what matters. Live like you're trying to take as many people as you can there. Take hold of it. Pursue it. Live in light of it. Okay, looks like Zoom just crashed, so let's do this here. You have all these in your notes, right? So I'm just going to keep going. Oh, those are still there. Okay, well, that's not going to continue, but you've got it in your notes, right? Okay, so the next one is uh, take hold. uh, Number five is keep, right? Look at verse 14. Uh, He says... um, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who's testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, verse 14, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty convicting, isn't it? Here's Jesus' charge, ready? Do what I tell you to do until I come back. I'll give you grace to help you. I know it's not going to be perfect, but resolve and do it. What's one thing that you're not doing that you know Jesus has called you to do? says that that's the mission right that's what being faithful to jesus comes flee pursue fight take hold of keep keep the commandment without stain or reproach until he comes back do you know it's it's possible to pervert grace to where we don't take seriously the commands of god So here's a question. Does your belief in grace bolster a commitment to obey God? Or does it erode that commitment because grace covers sin? What he's saying is grace ought to bolster and reinforce and motivate a commitment to be faithful to God until he returns. Knowing that he'll work mightily in us as we do that. So keep, uh, number six is instruct, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world to not be conceited or fix their hope. Uh, so we have to instruct, right? Faithfulness means we instruct. We instruct in Awana, we instruct our kids, we instruct with our spouse, we instruct our own hearts, we instruct uh, our Good News Club, the elementary school, we instruct in family members and friends. 
This is back to we've got to know our Bible so that we're able to give sound instruction and sound encouragement to other people. You say, well, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean I'm going to walk into my friend's cubicle, uh, tomorrow morning and I'm going to, I'm going to stand and I'm going to preach a sermon. But it, it does mean as, as you're topping off your coffee and that person talks, you know, how was your Christmas? And they start talking about how hard their Christmas was. That you're able to instruct them in the hope that is in your faith. And finally, we guard. Look at this last one here. Verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and have thus gone astray from the faith. What does guarding mean? What's that? Protect it. What, what, what do you protect in your life? Talk, talk to me here. What, what do you protect? Those, love. Those you love. Your, your hearts. Children, grandchildren. Right? You protect your health. You protect things that, that put you in danger. Right? You, you protect your life. You, you've thought about God has entrusted us with the gospel. And he calls us to guard it. And you know what that means? There are threats to that gospel. There, there are things that that gospel is in danger of perverting or distorting or taking away or distracting. And he says, okay, till Jesus comes, you guard that. We, Grace Bible Church, we have to guard this gospel that's been entrusted to us and stay focused on it and, and keep it from being influenced by all these other things. And to remember, what does he say here? Avoid worldly and empty chatter in the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. You know what that means? What you read on a blog this week might threaten the gospel that we're called to guard. Or it may not come from the outside. It may be one of those incredibly perverse but subtle temptations that arises out of our own remaining fallenness and threatens us to put our hope in something other than Jesus. And that's an occasion to guard it, isn't it? So we guard it from things out there. We guard it from things in here. And we guard it until He comes. You know, if we, if we, I've never been to Fort Knox. Have you been to Fort Knox? I bet that place is guarded and protected with soldiers and angry dogs and guns and security surveillance systems and all that. And we, we need to guard the gospel and preserve it and protect it from any and all threats so that we can be faithful to hold it for a world that needs it. So let's guard our hearts. Let's watch it. Uh, and let's guard what has been entrusted to us so that we can be faithful till he comes again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these admonitions and just a reminder that um, you have entrusted us with such a precious treasure. And we want to guard it and protect it from our own perversity, from our own fallenness, and from all sorts of external and outside threats. Uh, Lord, make us faithful. Um, Till you come, make us faithful to lean only on Christ. 
Make us faithful to be effective to take this incredible privilege of ministry and share it. Share this gospel message with so many people that need it. Lord, it's why we're here. There are a thousand distractions, but help us to remain singular in our desire and in our goal until you come again. In Christ's name, amen.